Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. My name is John Schack, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find information about my congregation at the website FPC. Elizabethton.org. That's FPC Elizabethton.org. I have a new website that connects this radio program with my own reflections about religion at religionforlife.com. All one word, religion for F O R L I F E.com. Do bookmark that website, uh, favorite it, put it on your phone religionforlife.com. Not only will you find information about upcoming programs and links to podcasts, but you will find sermons and articles that I have written about religion in America, religionforlife.com. I'm interested in where religion is going in America. The foundations are shaking. An illustration of this is that young people are leaving established churches in droves. Religion and attitudes toward religion are changing, We're becoming increasingly polarized over religion. Some suggest that religion poisons everything. Others insist that religion is a force for good. Many of us, whether religious or not, are not sure. There is a lot about religion that is not to like. Yet, at the same time, there are those who, because of their religious commitments, are making this world a more peaceable place. I recorded a number of conversations with people who have something to say about the future of faith or the future of religion, if you like. Mostly, it's Christian-based, as that is the dominant religion in our country. So where is religion, and in particular, Christianity, going? I've put together a series of shows under the heading, The Future of Faith. Coming up in future programs, I will be speaking with authors who have something to say about the changes taking place in religion and what these changes mean. Some are evangelical, others progressive, all are critical. That is, all are critical thinkers about religion. And we will learn from all of them. They include Diana Butler Bass. She is the author of this book with an interesting title, Christianity After Religion. Brian McLaren, an icon of the emergence movement. His latest book is Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? And he'll talk about religious pluralism. Carol Howard Merritt, a Presbyterian minister who has a great deal to say and a passion for younger generations in the ministry uh, and in the church. Her book is called Reframing Hope. Robin Myers, the radical from Oklahoma who had a book entitled Saving Jesus from the Church. Uh, His latest is The Underground Church. And Marcus Borg, one of the founders of the Jesus Seminar, his book is Speaking Christian, and he will speak about that. I will also be presenting viewpoints from clergy who have ceased to believe in the doctrines of the church. The Clergy Project is an organization uh, founded an internet online community for ministers who have lost their faith and yet still are in the ministry and what that means. I think that is the tip of an iceberg of a huge movement that will continue to shake the foundations of the church and its authority. Last week, we heard from evangelical uh, David Kinneman, who is the executive of the Barna Group, He talked about why young people are leaving the church. Today and next week, I'm speaking with Phyllis Tickle. 
She's an expert on the big picture. We will begin in earnest with her analysis of the history of Christianity and how it is changing today as we are, in her words, in the middle of a great emergence. Whether you consider yourself Christian, religious, spiritual, atheist, agnostic, or something else, you'll find something of interest in this series on Religion for Life called The Future of Faith. Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My guest is Professor Phyllis Tickle. Uh, Phyllis Tickle is the founding editor of the Religion Department of Publishers Weekly. This is the International Journal of the Book Industry, and she is frequently quoted in print sources like USA Today, Christian Science Monitor, New York Times, as well as in electronic media like PBS, NPR, the Hallmark Channel, and innumerable blogs and websites. Professor Tickle is an authority on religion in America and a much sought-after lecturer on the subject. In addition to lectures and numerous essays, articles, and interviews, Professor Tickle is the author of over two dozen books in religion and spirituality, including The Great Emergence, how Christianity is changing and why, and the words of Jesus, a gospel of the sayings of our Lord. Professor Tickle began her career as a college teacher and for almost 10 years served as academic dean to the Memphis College of Art before entering full-time into writing and publishing. She's a lay Eucharistic minister and lector in the Episcopal Church. She's the mother of seven children and with her physician husband makes her home on a small farm in Lucy, Tennessee. Her latest book is Emergence Christianity, what it is, where it is going, and why it matters. Welcome, Professor Tickle, to Religion for Life. Well, thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. You have said uh, uh, famously now uh, that every 500 years, the church holds a giant rummage sale. Let's start there. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, let's start immediately by saying that um, I can't lay claim to that one. It's such a lovely image that I probably have used it more than Bishop Dyer, who first mouths it. But every once in a while, I will see Bishop Mark Dyer, and he will wink at me. And the last time I saw him, he actually handed me a copy or a, a photocopy of an article he wrote in 1992 using the rummage sale and said, I just want you to know, uh, don't want you to forget uh, – who, who first said it, but it is a very oh, okay. felicitous um, way of putting it. Every 500 years, um, the Latinized uh, culture, um, that is, those parts of the world that received their Christianity through the Latin language or were colonized by those who did so receive or colonialized by those who did so receive, go through a, a giant upheaval. And I think Bishop Dyer is perfectly correct. It's a rummage sale. Um, it's uh, And rummage says, he goes on very quickly, and I think we should too here, Pastor, goes on very quickly to say that um, – Rummage sales are good things, and then he kind of laughs and says, for one thing, you get rid of your junk. You get to sell it to other people, um, but the other thing about it is you, you get to find treasures, things that in the course of living you've forgotten or misplaced or just set aside and didn't get back to, um, and as you go through what has been, you find some of the wonderful things that can now join the new way things are um, and maintain the tradition. So. Uh, a, a rummage sale is a very good thing, and it's a happy image. It keeps it from being too serious. Um, there are other images. Every 500 years, we go through a great tsunami. Sometimes when I'm talking to audiences, I like to be really flip and say, we just are going through a big whoopee. Um, <laughs> but we do it with consistency. 
And so that's what we're going through right now, a big tsunami, a big whoopee, and a big rummage sale. Why is that? What is happening now that causes uh, uh, something new to happen within Christianity? Right. Well, first of all, let me say that when this happens, it's not just Christianity. We who are in professional religion, well, let me start over. Let me say, first of all, obviously we're in the 21st century, not a late-breaking news bulletin. We're in the 21st century. If you go back 500 years, you hit the 16th century, and what does that give you? The Great Reformation, mm-hmm. right? Right. Uh, if you go back 1,000 years uh, or 500 from the Great Reformation, that gives you the Great Schism or Schism, according to where you learn to say it. Uh, and if you go back 500 years from that, that gives you the Great Decline and Fall. And 500 years back from that is the first century, and all of a sudden you're in the great transformation or the great transition. Both terms are used for it. Whatever you call it, it was so important and so pivotal that we even date from it, changed our dates from it. So that we we do this thing, but who's the doing and what's happening? Um, It's not just the church. Most of us are familiar with the Reformation, reasonably so anyway, uh, and it's perhaps the best example. But if you will remember in high school, uh, if you, especially if you went to a secular school, uh, in high school they said the Great Reformation, 16th century. Uh, it gave us the rise of the middle class. It saw the birth of capitalism. It uh, politically saw the coming of the nation state. Philosophically, it gave us humanism. Oh, and by the way, it gave us Protestantism which is pretty much how a secular teacher would approach the Reformation. We in religion tend to think it's Protestantism and sort of forget all of the other. Um, You can't do that. Mm -hmm. It's the whole culture. It is always true that religion is contextualized. And every time I say that, I see some dear soul just cringe. But it's absolutely true. Religion functions. Now, your, your private faith... You may argue that your private faith is not contextualized, and I'll I'll not challenge you. I think you're wrong, but I won't challenge you. But when you put two faiths together or two people of faith together, you have a religion, and religion functions within a a social and cultural context. It just does. Its purpose, sociologically speaking, is to answer the question of who's making the rules and uh, why are we here? What's the point in this whole thing? It's to give value and to define value for the society in which it exists. But by the same token, the society which religion serves also affects that religion. It just does. So when we go through one of these rummage sales or whoopies or whatever you want to call it, when we go through one of these things, every single thing in uh, life changes. The we still being uh, those parts of the world that were susceptible to receiving Christianity through uh, the Latin language. Now, Having said that, that sounds like a a complicated way of getting around saying first world or western world or something. If you're going to use western, then at least use westernized because emergence Christianity, for instance, since that's what we're talking about, um, it it came to North America last. We're the Johnny-come-latelys on this. You can see this thing uh, in Africa, for instance, on the Horo. You can see it uh, among the indigenous people uh, in South America as well as the – those who have come in, um, as Generacion Emergente, or La Rad del Camino, uh, you can see it in Malaysia, at Rajasia. Um, so it's all over uh, the world in those parts that were susceptible to Latinization, which means um, that not only does it affect Christianity, but for instance, uh, it affects uh, Judaism. And any good rabbi worth his or her salt 
Well, stand up. I've been interrupted so many times I try to circumvent it by just saying it to start with. That what we're talking about is not a Christian phenomenon. If you're going to put a religious name on it, it's Judeo-Christian at the very least. Because if you go back from the first century, 500 years, you hit the Babylonian captivity, right? The end of First Temple Judaism, the coming of Second. And if you go back 500 years from that, uh, you hit the end of the Age of Judges and the establishment of the Davidic dynasty, out of which Meshul was to come. So um, it seems to be Judeo-Christian from a Jewish point of view. Interestingly enough, um, imams, uh, when they are in an audience where I am, have tended to raise a hand or sometimes just to stand up, and, and he will say, perhaps we should not say it's a Judeo-Christian phenomenon. Perhaps we should say it's an Abrahamic, uh, since uh, Islam evidence is the same 500-year, or at least according to them and to Islamic historians. I'm not an authority on Islam, unfortunately, so I have to quote those who tell me um, that Islam uh, evidence is the same 500-year cycling, though it's 650 years out of sync with Judaism and Christianity because it came 650 years uh, after Christianity. Um, and they interpret Arab Spring, for instance, as being evidence that uh, Islam is moving into something analogous to our um, uh, 14th, late 14th and 15th century when we were facing the Great Reformation. All of which is to say that everything changes, and it's a long answer to your very fundamental question, why is it changing now? Uh, you know, it's changing always, I think. It, uh, I think it's a broad statement, but Always you can say there's a technological reason. Something lurches forward. Um, something takes the whole society by the nape of the neck and, and shakes it. Now, clearly what has – and there's a period in, in every one of these things. It's called the Perry, if you want to call it academic. Let me give it its academic name. I call it the tick up. But there's a period of about 150 years each time um, that you can see those changes occurring. Um, that is to say that the Great Reformation didn't happen on October 31st, 1517. We all know that. It's an academic convenience to say, you know, October 31st, 1517, ah, now we've got Reformation. Now we know what we're in. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's comfortable. But the Reformation itself uh, starts about 1390, and you have about 150 year, not quite, but almost 150 year tick up to the thing. Um, the Great Emergence, um, which is going to be dated apparently from 9-11. It would not have been my choice of dates um, from which to mark it, but it wasn't up to me. So uh, it, it seems to be by common consent that 9-11 is going to be it. Uh, and you can see 150 years prior to 9-11, you can see it beginning with a man named Michael Faraday. Michael Faraday was a chemist. He retired in 1842 and he went to work in his den at home in 1843. And by 1844, he was describing mathematically what was called field theory. Um, that is, he opened up conductivity and, and reduced it to mathematical formulae. It could be explained and explicated and employed. Did the same thing with electricity. He worked a while on gravity. And the minute he does that, um, or by, by 44 anyway, I shouldn't say the minute, but within the two years of his doing that. Uh, what he has done is change all of Latinized society, whether he meant to or not, uh, because now we've got electricity and uh, everything. I mean, straight up to the Internet, straight up to Skype, uh, straight up to, to radio, everything pivots once he does that in much the same way um, that um, – 
in much the same way that the printing press, I hate to make that analogy, certainly the printing press did excite or augment or enhance uh, the Reformation, um, but there were other technological changes that preceded it. The introduction of gunpowder, um, cheap gunpowder, um, in, into Europe is probably the piece of technology I would put my finger on first because when that happens, the feudal system begins to die. Um, and by the time it's cheap in the in the 15th century, late 14th century, you've got manor lords who, um, who are going up against other manor lords and are finding that they're going to have to amalgamate. Uh, in order to survive, that you can no longer do it with swords and bows and arrows and 20 men fighting 20 men to keep the boundaries. Uh, it doesn't work that way. And so you do indeed get the birth of the nation state, which increases the level of commerce uh, and the, the ability to move nation to nation or, or place to place. So uh, all of that cumulatively, but the printing press gets the real kudos, of course. Uh, but uh, so everything in, everything in our lives um, has changed since 1842, and and dramatically, John, and and you know this too. Um, I, I am I'm stunned by the fact that information, just sheer technical information, doubles in less than 10 months. Every nine months and 27 days, or something like that, uh, information doubles. We can't keep up with that. There's no, you know. Wikipedia is more accurate than Britannica simply because of the fluidity of information. The young people who entered technical college um, in September um, are going to have everything they learn this year and next year obviated by the time they get to be juniors. Obviated. Be, be of no use. Uh, there were 8,000 cars in this country in 1900. There are 8,000 cars in the average parking lot now. Uh, you know, I mean <laughs> – the, the, the sheer mobility. Most of us live um, at least 40 miles away from where we were born because we are mobile. And the conservatory or the conserving effect of, of the home and of the village is totally obliterated by that. Uh, it, it just is. I, I think one of the most um, obvious things about this is that this year, in 2012, in this country, in the U.S., um, over half the babies born uh, to women under 30 will be born out of wedlock and deliberately conceived, uh, which means um, you can quip about it, and I do, which means uh, that she wants the baby and not the nuisance. But uh, <laughs> any, any way you go at it, that's a huge sociological shift. Uh, we, we talk casually to England by, you know, by computer. We have Facebook friends all over the world. When Greece catches a cold uh, financially, then what is Crete Zakaria, the news economic news analyst for Time and CNN, call it? He says it's mergenomics, of course. Thomas Friedman nailed it 10 years ago with saying that the world is flat. Of course it is. We're globalized. So everything every, – and, and you know, I have some colleagues, John, who um, try to find the funny things because um, – any way you get at it, this is deadly serious. It was deadly serious to be born in 1500 or in 1450, uh, and this is deadly serious. And uh, I have this colleague whom I've never met who sends me funny things. Uh, and in November, she sent me a whole catch of, you know you're living in the great emergence when. And uh, one or two of them were really sort of funny, I thought. You know you're living in a great emergence when you have 15 cell phone numbers for uh, for your three-member family. But the one I loved was, she said, you know you're living in the great emergence when you poke your um, pin number into the microwave and then can't figure out why the damn thing doesn't turn on, um, which is a, a good humorous way, and humor is important 
times like these. Uh, it's a good humorous way uh, to to look at what we're going through and why we're doing it. Uh, you know, it, uh, indeed, everything is changing. I don't think anything shows that any better than the election of 2012. Um, um, when capitalism is under siege, uh, has been since 1848, and Karl Marx, right? Uh, you know, uh, evangelicalism is splintering and has been in this country, has been for, what, 30 years at least, probably, uh, severing apart. So um, everything is, is up for grabs, and cumulatively, uh, no society can take them all, all, all at once. And since we can't take them all on all at once, um, we just sort of stop and, and rev up and, and reposition ourselves. And in the course of that, of course, the thing that for you and me and people like us, the thing that's most interesting is the revving up and the adaptation of that form of religion that held hegemony of place. And Protestantism has held hegemony of place for the last 500 years in the same way that Roman Catholicism held it for the previous 500 years, and Mediterranean uh, Christianity held it for the 500 years before then. Um, does it mean Protestantism is going to die? Um, it's not, but it's going to have to reconfigure, just as Roman Catholicism had to reconfigure 500 years ago when we called it the Council of Trent, um, or the reinstitution of the Inquisition, or you know the Counter-Reformation. Uh, all of those things are evidence of the same thing that, uh, that we're going through here. And it's an exciting time. The, the thing that excites me about this is we're the first ones, uh, so far as we know, uh, we're the first ones to go through one of these things and know what we're doing, uh, which is kind of exciting because if history holds its pattern, we have about 90 more years to find out who is calling the, the shots? Who? Where is the authority? What is the ultimate good here? Why are we here to establish that meaning? And then we'll have about 250 years of living with what we establish um, before somebody will start trying to knock it down again. And we'll have 150 years of knocking it down. We'll be back 500 years from now to the great whatever it is that's going to come next. Um, but it's an interesting thing to watch and to be part of. My guest, if you're just joining us on Religion for Life, is Professor Phyllis Tickle. She's the author of Emergence Christianity, What It Is, Where It Is Going, and Why It Matters. And we just had a marvelous uh, history of incredible change uh, that is happening. And, and part of it is this whole globalization, industrial revolution, I suppose, oil. I wonder, though, you know, we've, we've, we've connected technologically so much and in fact we're talking via Skype right now but but I'm wondering uh, that some of are also saying that we're reaching our peaks on these things uh, of energy and that we may actually be this may be a this vast communication itself may be a blip and we could be moving into something quite different quite uh, quite more local again well I, I think there's going to ultimately logically there will be a, a return to uh, a a sense of the local. You can call that uh, euphemistically the communal urge, which is a big part, obviously, of, of emergence Christianity, or it's a, a big part of current um, uh, current sociological things, the need to get to a community. I would suggest, however, that some of the cutting-edge, or it seems to me cutting-edge scholarship, is proposing a more likely thing that probably what we're seeing is um, an increase in tribalization. Mm -hmm. uh, Bruce Bimber um, at the University of California probably has the best work on that, but which is to say that our communities now are, are indeed 
local. Um, they are not geographically, or they're not geopolitically, maybe we should say, not geopolitically or domestically identified. Um, they are identified rather um, through sensibilities and commonalities, uh, thus making communities on, for instance, Facebook and, and that kind of thing that are are based in virtuality instead of physicality. And you will see also, uh, in fact, I just came out of, of a week at Mo Ranch, owned by the Presbyterian Church USA, um, of uh, watching some of the practitioners uh, in all of this uh, speak of the fact that, well, two things. Uh, in Second Life, for instance, you've got, you've got a, in virtuality, in Second Life, you've got real community. Uh, and you've got... Uh, You've got family and you've got localization. It just isn't in physicality. And that seems to be one of the things. A second, that I, second Life is an Internet uh, it's an inter it's, it's virtuality. It, okay. it is uh, a world based in um, virtual space as opposed to the United States being in physical space. Um, okay. And uh, so that's – that's one of the things that may happen. I think the other thing, the thing that interests me about your question and the reason I hesitated a little bit, I, I'm fascinated. I had a, a, an audience member uh, call this to my attention, and I thought, Lord, how stupid of me not to see it. I don't know how much uh, YA or young adult fiction uh, you read, but more and more of it is dystopic. That mm -hmm. is, it, um, it sees or it functions or it sets its plot within a world that is entirely alien to the one we live in now and that is indeed shattered down into parts and that um, has automatons and transhumanism uh, and a whole different identity for the human animal and the nature of how we do business and do war. Um, not that I think dystopia is going to come in any way, but I think it may be a fictive way, and I was interested to hear that also at the Mo Ranch meeting. Um, it may be a fictive way beginning to deal with the fact we don't quite know what the future is, but we can well believe that somehow there's going to be a redefinition of intimate community um, and that it may lead to the to a dystopic uh, I guess that's the word uh, a dystopic uh, organization or frame of reference or whatever for society um, in, in lar at large, in other words, no longer geopolitical. Neo-tribalism is what Bimber calls it. I, I think that could be dangerous um, in, in every way. I think it's something definitely to be avoided. But there's too much conversation about it for me to think it's just a big Newton of somebody's imagination. It's a real possibility. I think your question speaks to the fact that it's a real possibility. Uh, Jack Spong, Bishop Jack Spong, whom we all know of and, and mm -hmm. love and fear, um, with the Jesus Seminar, where I think you also have been active, right? Is that yes, not right, I, Pastor? Yes. I, yes, I have. Uh, Jack Spong in 60, oh, let me get this right, 69, I think it may have been 67. Anyway, uh, he was the first to look at uh, what was happening, or so far as I know he was the first, to look at what uh, is happening, uh, especially in North American uh, church, and begin to call it catacomb Christians, um, which was his way of reflecting the fact that uh, as we become less tied to physical um, communities, 
and units, uh, we may become more like the first and second and third century Christians who did indeed gather and become a kind of secret society, if you will, almost, um, buried under the larger society that they didn't want to have anything to do with. Um, yeah. So I don't know, but it's a good question. It deals obviously with the, the yet to come rather than the immediate, but it definitely is a possibility. And we will continue our conversation with Phyllis Tickle next week on Religion for Life. My name is John Schock. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church in Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find more information about my congregation on the website, fpcelizabethton.org. You can also find out more information about this program and links to podcasts at religionforlife.com, religionforlife.com. Find Religion for Life on Facebook and Twitter and iTunes. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETF. SFM and WETS HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHCFM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.